0: Hello, welcome to the Westside podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. With what force I could muster, I rose to face God the brightness of the sun obscuring both of our faces. I knew it was the God of my mistress, whom she called Yahweh. But if I was to be the mother of a nation, I would need to give this God a new name. You are a God who not only hears but also sees, I said, surprised by the strength in my voice. I have seen the one who sees me. My faith, like Abrams, was tested. But my faith, unlike the patriarchs, was not immortalized in Caravaggio's reds or Chagall's blues for later generations to view. Nor was it remembered in the litany of Hebrews or in the genealogies of your New Testament. Yet, just one person in all your sacred scripture dared to name God. And it wasn't a priest, a prophet, a warrior or a king, it was I, Hagar, foreigner, woman, slave, don't you dare forget." That's a quote from my favorite author and theologian, Rachel Held Evans, as she examines the life and legacy of Hagar. Hagar lived a life relatable to those who are oppressed and feeling hopeless, yet her redemption is quickly dismissed as just another life lost to the morally confusing injustices committed in the Old Testament. A servant to Sarai, an Egyptian slave in a foreign land, she is forced to have sex with an elderly Abram out of the couple's unbelief that God could bear them children even in their old age. That's not a fun way to start anyone's story. We always want to identify with the perfect Bible hero in these stories, the one that does what God wants even though it's difficult and comes out on top in the end. As Josh put it last week, faith is not a flawless following after God, it's a resolve to continually turn our attention to God in every circumstance. This story is one that proves there's not a perfect hero but Jesus, because these are some messed up people. In most understandings of the text, the story goes something like this. Hagar has no choice but to marry Abram. No one asks Hagar if she wants this for herself. After one night, she gets pregnant with a child, and once pregnant, she begins to be disrespectful to Sarai. Many versions say that she looked to or treated her mistress with contempt. Others say that she began to despise her mistress, Um, Rabbinic tradition holds that Hagar stated, my mistress Sarai is not inside what she is outside. She appears to be righteous, but she is not righteous. Had she been a righteous woman, see how many years have passed without her conceiving, whereas I conceived in one night. Because of the favor that God had shown her, Hagar became prideful and rude. She clings to an identity that would have given her some kind of control over her situation, a relatable struggle for anyone who's gone through a traumatic event. That behavior, however, did not warrant what Sarai chose to do next. She blamed Hagar's new disrespectful behavior on Abram. And when Abram, attempting to get a rise out of Sarai, told her to, quote, deal with her as Sarai sees fit, Sarai chose to abuse Hagar. The author of Genesis doesn't explain explicitly what happened to Hagar, but we know it was enough for her to run away. Pregnant and afraid, wandering alone in the wilderness, an angel of the Lord found her at a spring beside the road to Shur. Shur is likely on the Egypt side of the border between what we know as modern-day Israel and modern-day Egypt. Have you ever wondered how Abram came into possession of Hagar? I did. I often find the Old Testament really hard to track, and this is one of those things that just fell through the cracks for me. Um, In my head, especially as I've told this story before, I often take Hagar's presence in Abram's house the way that the author of Genesis says it. Not until I recently heard Jackie Hill Perry preach on this passage did I come to learn that Hagar was an acquisition of Abram during the messy things that happened in Egypt with the Pharaoh. You know that super relatable moment when Abram is like, so I'm gonna tell Pharaoh that you're my sister because you're so beautiful and that way he won't kill me to get to you and then God sends plagues, and Pharaoh's like, dude, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you tell me this is your wife? Super relatable. <laughs> I never noti- what I never noticed was this sneaky little sentence after Pharaoh has taken Sarai to his harem. Quote, He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. Hagar, the slave that Abram came into possession of through his lying, because his self-important attitude told him that his safety was worth more than his wife. Hagar is on the road to Shur because she's pregnant, afraid, and the only place that she can think to go is back home. This is the context in which an angel of the Lord meets her. Not just any plain old angel either. I'd argue to say that this is the first time Jesus shows up as an angel of the Lord in the Hebrew Bible. Listen carefully to how he speaks to her, and Jesus will reveal himself in the words that the angel says. He opens with a question. Calling her by her name, and asking her where she has come from and where she's going. Succinctly, she says that she's running away from Sarai. The angel then tells her to go back to your mistress, put up with her abuse. Then he tells her, and this is a quote, I will give you more descendants than you can count. He continues on to prophesy about the birth of her son, who will still have many descendants as he promised, and he names him Ishmael, which means God hears. Hagar then looks at the Lord who spoke to her and calls him by a new name. Elroy, she says. God of sight, have I truly seen the one who sees me? After her encounter, she names the well that she spoke to the Lord at and returns to Sarai and Abram. This small story out of our scriptures is about a strong human being wronged by those who have been both chosen by God and should be guided by God only to do right, witness God herself and choose to walk back into the situation. Consider how Hagar reacts to suffering, particularly suffering that is cast On her by those considered righteous and upright people of God she doesn't seek revenge retaliate or become abusive herself she heads home it comes face to face with the living God God names her kid God hears and by that fact God is telling her that he heard the suffering the quiet conversations between Abram and Sarai the abuses done to her She knows that Yahweh, the Lord of that same mistress who caused all of this harm to her, is someone who sees her and knows her. She listens to what he asks her to do because she already knows that he's in control. Not a lot of people can say that they react in a way that obeys God when facing oppression, especially from the righteous and upright. It's easy to see yourself as Sarai in this story. Just like it's easy to see yourself as the Pharisee over the tax collector, or the older brother over the prodigal son. We are the people of God, those whom God has chosen and called to spread his kingdom on earth. Sarai is supposed to be the mother of the chosen nation. And yet, She gets hung up on the very same things that we do. Before I talk more about Hagar, I want you to align yourselves with the story of Sarai. Don't worry, it isn't my intention to paint her entirely as a villain. Her past is painful too. Last week, Josh finished his message by asking three questions. As he asked them, I was listening in a sort of disbelief at how much at least the first two apply to the mother of the nation of Israel. The first question was, are you hung up on a part of your past while God is trying to call you to the present? We briefly touched on that gross moment where Abram lets his wife be taken into the Pharaoh of Egypt's harem over even just the idea that his own life would be saved. That's so horrifying. (laughs) Abram didn't trust that God would be faithful to the promise that he just made him. So he decided to take control of his own life back into his own hands and pawn off his wife to the Pharaoh's harem for it. I don't have to explain to you why that is deplorable and disgusting. God, God had to step in and cause plagues to get Pharaoh's attention because Abram just left his wife there. The fact that they could ever even recover from this moment in their relationship is astounding. (laughs) Sarai had to move through the remainder of her life knowing that her husband traded her, more specifically her body, for his own life. I can't imagine how traumatizing that would be. So as time goes on, she still isn't having any children. God promised her and Abram that it would happen, but it's been a while. Sorry. She takes her thoughts off of what God promised would happen and sets her sights on planning a way to make it happen herself. I'm sure that it crossed her mind that whatever happened to her while she was in the possession of the Pharaoh could be a contributing factor to why God would, quote, keep her from having children. She decides that it's impossible for her to conceive, so she'll save her own life by offering up Hagar as a way to make God's promise happen. She's so hung up on what happened to her in the past that she repeats the exact same thing in the present. I think that that is the danger of getting stuck in our own past. Sarai knew it was God who controlled her fertility and she decided that she was capable of taking control and making the decision for God just like Abram did with her in Egypt. That leads to the next thing Josh asked us last week. The second question was, is there an area of life right now where you are more interested in comfort than obedience to God? No way was it comfortable for Zerai to wait on God to make his move, socially, spiritually, mentally, physically. That had to have been horribly taxing on her, and the pressure was intense for a woman of her age. She made the comfortable decision for herself, at the price of someone else. It takes away all of that pressure and discomfort just to have Hagar bear the child for her. In a a disobedient move, she puts all of her discomfort and suffering off onto Hagar, forcing her to carry a child for Abram. If you are still on the fence, about why the things God labels as sins are bad? Here's a prime example. Her heart was too heavy, and her sinfulness got in the way. She caused another person to suffer for her discomfort with God's plan. I have my own questions for you to consider. What if God knows you? What if God loves you? What if God knows and loves everyone else too? Does that change anything for you? If you can't make change for yourself, what about for the God who knows and loves you? Or for the other people that God knows and loves too? Hagar understood this in her brief interaction with Jesus. Step out of Sarai's shoes. We saw what can go wrong when you think you can solve the problems and make God's plans happen better than he can. Just for a moment, see yourself as Hagar. Hagar, who listens to the Lord after all that he tangibly does to turn her life around in that moment is revealed that he knows. In the beautiful literary work of the Bible, Hagar is the perfect example of how God redeems. God promises that through Hagar, her son will also be a great nation, but she has to endure the abuse for right now. God plays the long game. I often find myself wishing that the broken things in this world could be fixed. I wish that the oppressed would find justice and the oppressors would have to face it. But Hagar's patient. She knows that she will see justice through her son, even if it doesn't happen in her lifetime. God's goodness in that moment and his promise for a future were enough for her. Just to be heard and seen was enough for her. Hagar's patience is representative of a faith that she has in a God she just met, but knows is trustworthy. When things happen in your life, do you guys ever just look back on them and think, that couldn't have been anything but the God who sees me. I have many of those moments, and in retrospect, the things that happened couldn't have been anything other than God, and the way that they happened proved that he is Elroy, the God who understands, the God who knows. This story is important personally to me as there have been many times that God has taken me out of or turned the tide on many situations that required so much nuance to understand. This story is also important to whole communities, most notably African-American women who were enslaved, painfully anticipating freedom, not only for themselves, but also for their sons and daughters. It's so vital in this story to notice how God acknowledges Hagar's humanity. In the most dehumanizing of situations, God says her name. That's an acknowledgement of her humanity. It was so important for those women back then, and it's very important for us to hear now. Hagar shows us How to respond to God. Alone, afraid, and in an unknown place, Hagar encounters God after abandoning all that she knows, understanding that the world is broken, it's not supposed to be this way. In this vulnerable state, God finds her. He says her name. He kindly asks her what's happened and directs her on the path that she should go telling her that he's looking out for her and that he has her back. That's our God. We see God in the high places, yes. When you're on top of the world and you can't help but thank God for all of the wonderful things that he has given you. He's a God of goodness and a God of mercy and a God of grace. He's worthy of our praise. But never forget that God also draws close to us in the low places when we're longing for redemption and escape from the terrible burden of our own sin and the sins that others may put on us. He's a God of justice and a God of rescue and a God of freedom. Those aren't just Christian buzzwords. He calls your name. He sees you. He knows what has happened to you and what will happen to you and he will never leave you. He's the God who knows. As the psalmist says in Psalm 139, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In light of God seeing us, We must acknowledge that His goodness and His promise are enough for us. But we aren't the only seen and loved people in this world. Accept your belovedness. Behold God. And if you take anything away from this, let it be the golden rule. Love your neighbor. If God knows you and loves you, he certainly knows and loves others too. We may not be slaves to Sarai, but we certainly can't live like slaves to a cycle of hatred and violence anymore with a God that is this compassionate and corrective. We are commanded in 1 Peter two sixteen through 17 to live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, live as God's slaves, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. Hagar acknowledges that God knows the depths of her soul, and he has told her to walk back into the situation, into the abuse that she suffered being a slave to Sarai, with the future glory of redemption in mind. We must live like Hagar, who is no longer a slave to Sarai, but a slave to a God who sees, directs her steps, and tells her to return home. We live as free people, but not in a way that covers up evil. We live in a way that also acknowledges we are God's possession. Show others respect. Know that God sees you and he loves you, he is the God who knows, accept your belovedness, your humanness, especially your freedom, behold the God who beholds you and love your beloved and beheld neighbor.